Hey, it's Ed. Real quick, before we get started, I want to thank four brand new podcast supporters who are generously supporting the podcast monthly via Patreon. Stephen Tyndall, Max Diazavito, Bobby Gill, and my old pal, Jim Mahan. Jim was my roommate in high school, and any sense of humor I have is a direct result of hanging out with him. So thank you, Mahan. Thank you, everybody else. I can't tell you how much I appreciate everybody's um, financial support of the podcast. Beyond that, I can't tell you how much I appreciate all the great reviews you guys have left on iTunes. I think right now we're almost at 250, almost all five-star reviews. So that really helps. means a lot. So thank you for that. And also, I just appreciate you listening. I didn't really have any expectations when I started the podcast that anybody would listen. So the fact that thousands of you are listening is insane, but I really appreciate it. Happy Thanksgiving. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Alexis Bonagovsky. Alexis is a rancher, conservationist, and community organizer who's fiercely committed to protecting the landscapes and communities of eastern Montana. While much of Alexis's career has been devoted to environmental issues in the West, the 2011 Exxon oil spill in the Yellowstone River brought the fight to her doorstep. Her family's pastures were inundated with oil, threatening not only the local ecosystem, but her family and community's livelihoods. Since that spill and the ensuing battle with Exxon, Alexis has become an outspoken advocate for ranchers, farmers, and rural Montana stakeholders. Through her writing and photography and old-fashioned relationship building, Alexis has become an invaluable force in bringing people together in spite of the current divisive political climate. Alexis grew up in eastern Montana as part of a tight-knit, hard-working, blue-collar family. From an early age, her parents ingrained in her a rock-solid work ethic and a deep sense of responsibility, characteristics that have served her well in her life and career. Alexis studied international development in both undergrad and grad school, but decided that rather than taking her expertise to another country, she could apply those invaluable skills to her home of eastern Montana. And as you'll hear in our conversation, Alexis is humble and open-minded, but completely unwavering when it comes to standing up against individuals or companies that seek to take advantage or bully the less powerful. I can't overstate how much I love this conversation. Alexis is a shining example of the impact that one person can have when she's willing to work hard, be intellectually humble, play the long game, and have the bravery to put herself out there. We chatted about a lot, including the Exxon oil spill and how it affected her life, work, and sense of responsibility. We talked about her time spent working with Native Americans as part of the Tribal Lands Partnership and some of the wisdom gained from that job. She talks about the lessons learned from her mother and father and graciously shares some thoughts on her father's tragic death several years ago. We also discuss her writing process, hunting, public lands, goats and llamas, our mutual contempt for bullies, and she offers a ton of book recommendations that have never been mentioned before on this podcast. This is a seriously inspiring episode, so I'm very excited for you to listen. 
be sure to check out Alexis's blog, East of Billings, and follow her on social media. I have links to everything in the episode notes. Hope you enjoy. The way that I normally start out these interviews is I ask people, when you meet somebody for the first time and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that? That's kind of funny. I mean, when someone when someone asks me that, my first thought is always a quote I read from Hunter Thompson. And he said, I've never claimed to be anything other than a nice guy and an athlete. And like, <laughs> I always just want to answer like that. Um, I And it kind of depends on where I'm at. But I usually I say I'm uh, a rancher and a writer. And I take pictures and I teach yoga and I do trainings on, you know, organizing and how to be a good citizen and activism. And um, I do a bunch of different things, but it's, it's hard to say just one thing. Which is exactly why I wanted to have you on the podcast, starting <laughs> out with a Hunter Thompson quote, followed by that uh, bio. That's, we got a lot to talk about in an hour. So thank you for being here. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I guess just to kind of set the stage, can you tell people where you live exactly and just kind of talk a little bit about the landscape and the community that, that's been part of your life for so long? Sure. So I, I actually grew up uh, south of Billings. I grew up on a farm uh, that is right along the Yellowstone River, and I still live here now. So that's where I'm speaking to you from. Um, I went to school in a small little rural school for, um, grade school, but then I went to high school in Billings and, you know, Billings is at a lot of times people, um, you know, especially in Montana, they, they talk about Billings as if it's not like a great place to live. And, um, I get a, I have a chip on my shoulder about that a little bit. And I recently wrote something called, I get it. You don't like Billings. Um, <laughs> and it was that. just about, <laughs> it's just about like, okay, everyone, can we stop talking poorly about other people's places and just try to make our places a good place to be. Um, but I, w- I was lucky because I got to grow up on a farm and spend my childhood basically outside. Um, the Billings is, a, you know, it's a blue collar community. It's got a lot of um, industrial development. It's also a really great place to, to grow up. It's got... Um, you know, we're near all of these amazing places. We're close to the Beartooth. We're close to the Yellowstone National Park. We're close to so many great places in eastern Montana and the Pryor Mountains. And um, I really love it. Yeah, it's a cool place. And I, I hadn't really spent that much time there, e- even when I lived in Wyoming. But within the last two years, I, I had some work stuff up that way, kind of Billings and East. Mm-hmm. And I was so impressed, you know, with the landscape and the people and the community. And given it's kind of a, this broad, not so densely populated area, it's amazing the the kind of the depth of the community and the community pride that you is very palpable there, you know, even just spending a little bit of time there. And so um, I want to talk more about all that and more about your background, but I think maybe the the best place to, to start is 2011 when you walked out of your house on the farm and down to the river and it smelled funny. And can yeah. you talk, can you talk yeah. about, uh, kind of what you encountered in the, the journey that you've been on since then? Yeah. Um, so in 2011, there was a pipeline that was running, that ran underneath the Yellowstone river near Laurel Exxon pipeline. And because of high flooding, um, something hit the pipeline. So the river bottom scoured 
and something hit the pipeline hard and they call it a guillotine cut and it basically broke the pipeline in half and the, the pipeline broke the same time the river flooded. So basically all this oil came over the banks into my farm and a bunch of other people's farms along the Yellowstone river. Um, the more that morning I had walked down, I, you know, and I didn't know this, this had happened. It happened sort of in the middle of the night. And apparently what they said is they had done a reverse 911 call, but no one on my farm got it. My mom and dad didn't get it. And so I walked down and I just smell, you know, you, you know what oil smells like you walk down and all that's all I smell. And I, um, look around and there's just, you know, clumps of heavy crude oil floating through my pastures. And, you know, I'd never, you know, I'd been in environmental issues my whole life, but I'd never really thought about pipelines before. And so that started sort of my journey onto learning everything I could pipelines, especially pipelines that go underneath rivers and um, pipeline safety. So it was a it was a pretty traumatic experience for me and my family and just sort of navigating, um, navigating having an environmental disaster on your own, um, on your own land. It's, it's a eye opener. And so you mentioned that you had been in the environmental world before that. What, what were you doing prior to that? So I, when that happened, I actually worked for the national wildlife federation and I had worked for them um, since 2004, I guess. So managing the tribal lands conservation program. So I'd been working with tribes throughout the West on a ton of different issues from bison restoration to helping tribes stop certain energy development off tribal lands in, um, in some of their homeland areas like coal development in Southeast Montana um, so I've been doing that work for a long time and, but to have yourself personally impacted was, it just changes your, it just changes your perception. You all of a sudden you're, you go from helping a bunch of people who are dealing with stuff like this to being a person who is dealing with that. And it, um, it's, it just kind of changes your life. Yeah, I would imagine. So my, my wife was in the environmental kind of international development world for, for most of her mm-hmm. career and you know, she would spend a lot of time working with groups around the world that had been displaced by one thing or another, whether it was, you know, oil development, building dams, whatever. And it's one thing to kind of be on the outskirts, but it's another thing when you wake up and you're in the middle of it. Um, yeah. So what, I mean, so what did you do? I mean, I, I know it's a long story. <laughs> you probably will write a book about it someday, but so the oil's out there in your pasture, then what? Yeah. So I checked the Billings Gazette on my phone and I see what happened. And there was this number at the bottom of the, it said, if you had been impacted, please call this 1-800 number. So I called the 800 number and it was basically Exxon's insurance company saying, you know, what damages do you have? And and at the time, I don't know if it's okay to swear in your podcast. Yeah, let it rip, (laughs) especially on this subject. (laughs) At the time I was like, I, I, I was just like, I'll tell you that I was just in shock. I was like, you, there's an oil spill on my property and you want to know, like, you're not going to tell me, is it safe? You're not going to tell me, should I move my animals away from the oil? Um, I was like, what the hell is going on here? And I, you know, so I hung up the phone, I didn't talk to anyone. And then I called our department of emergency services and no one picked up. And then I called our department of environmental quality. No one picked up. 
I couldn't get a hold of anyone. I finally called a county commissioner and they were like, yeah, call Department of Emergency Services. It was like this, you know, I couldn't get straight answers from anyone. So finally, we actually drove down to where the pipeline broke and talked to actual people who worked for Exxon. And we were like, what is going on? And they're like, yeah, we, you know, it's the 4th of July weekend. We're not going to get cleanup workers here for like two or three days. And they're like, if, and they said to us, they said, if we were you, we'd move all of your livestock off your property. That's just the, and and so this was probably within a year of the Deep Horizon spill, correct? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, I remember when this happened because I I hadn't been out of that area too long, and I, I I clearly remember it happening, and I couldn't believe it, especially coming off the the um, deep horizon thing. Um, and so you got the animals out of there. I mean, I, we could we could talk about that all day, but, yeah. but then so I mean, what, so were you just getting madder and madder and madder, and and then how, you know what did you end up doing? Because a lot of your work has been around community organizing, and so yeah. can you kind of talk about the transition from yeah. just being yeah. absolutely furious? And I bet you didn't say what the hell. I bet you said yeah, I something. <laughs> I was going to say that word, and I was like, that might be too much for this podcast. <laughs> we we all know what you meant. Um, um, and so yeah, so so what? Where did it go from there? So well, we finally got. We went down to this public. It wasn't public. It was a press conference that Exxon was having. Some journalists called us and told us it was happening. And, you know, we walked in and we wanted to talk to someone. And we actually got met by a security guard from Exxon that was going to physically remove us from uh, this press conference where we actually had elected officials from our county there, which in Montana, we have great open meeting laws, which means if our elected officials are there, it's technically an open meeting and we have a right to be there. And so, you know, when you're met with a security guard and sort of this threat of, I mean, aggression and violence as a landowner, you realize what sort of situation you're in. So um, we ended up organizing a bunch of landowners along the river to get together. We hired an attorney pretty quickly, um, made sure that people packed the public hearings. We made sure that the right questions were getting asked and we really pushed the state of Montana to take over the oil spill um, cleanup effort. So to be the, be the entity in control of the cleanup. And we did that. And we, I have to say along the way we met Exxon, um, you know, with a lot of power and we were able to um, make sure that the state of Montana and the public was in control of it and not Exxon. Now, when you say we, who exactly is that? Like a coalition of, of landowners in the area yeah. that were affected by this? Yeah, it was it was landowners. There's some just great people along the river that really stepped up and um, people in Billings um, who were concerned about, you know, the Yellowstone River. And there was just a really good group of people who um, came together and, you know, we had this great network going where, you know, I would make a call to another landowner and then she would call 10 other people to say, okay, we've got this meeting coming up. These are the questions we need to ask. And that's the best type of organizing work in my world is when, you know, individual citizens step up to take that on people who actually aren't paid to do it, but people who see that their lives are being impacted by something and they, you know, they step up and take responsibility. 
Yeah, that 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 was another um, thing I learned from my wife's work is you know working with a lot of these in these developing countries, you know these people who are affected by these terrible environmental tragedies, they're not East Coast environmentalists who went to the Yale School of Forestry. They're yeah. you know people subs- living you know, on a subsist- subsistence level mm-hmm. who the reason they have to become activists and fight is because their kids are being poisoned. Right. And it's not some kind you know, the, the whole environmental world gets this weird um, spin, especially in rural communities sometimes. But mm-hmm. when it's in your backyard, like what you're doing, I mean, you don't have any choice. So, you you know, you, you're saying we um, and I don't know all the details, but I know <laughs> that you are a, a great leader in that community and that, you know, you spearhead a, a lot of this work. So I'm just curious, like, why did you decide to kind of be one of the people taking charge of this situation. I mean, what do you think it put that in, you know, gave you the the guts to do that? Because, you know, a lot of people were affected and a lot of people are affected by these, you know, tragedies like this all the time, but very few mm-hmm. people kind of decide to really lean into it and take charge yeah. of it. Um, so where do you think that came from? You know, I mean, I think my my parents taught me through actions, but also words that if I am able to speak up, I, it's my responsibility too, because there are people who aren't able for various reasons for, you know, either their jobs or, um, because of power differences. And I just was taught that like, if you can, you should, and you will. And it was never really a question in my mind, whether or not I should speak out and I think on some level, you know, my, this, this might be a little bit divergent, but it relates because my, my father, he was, a he always called himself a tire man, mm-hmm. but he always kind of like downplayed what he did. He was a small business owner, owned a tire store and we didn't have a lot of money growing up, but he, so he worked at the tire store and he also cut wood to sell in the winter and he also plowed snow in the winter and he he was always doing all this stuff. You know, he would get up, he would plow snow at 3 a.m. He would go to the tire store and then he would come home and cut wood until eight or nine at night. And he always said, it's just money. We can make more. And, but he worked his butt off. And I always think, well, you know, if I speak out and I have consequences for it, let's just say that I don't get a certain job because I said something about, you know, the oil industry or I said something about the coal industry well, then I'll just go cut wood or I'll just go plow snow. Mm-hmm. Like he, he taught me how to do a lot of things. So I, I never feel like my livelihood is reliant on one thing. So when I speak out, I feel, you know, pretty confident that I'm like, well, I can take care of myself. You know, let's just say something happened and I couldn't, you know, be a photographer or writer anymore. Or then I'll, I'll just go do this. Yeah. And, um, it's, you know, that's just how, kind of how I grew up. I think that's a powerful point of view. I, I heard somewhere it was some negotiation book or something I was reading, and it said the person who cares the least wins. And yeah, I think exactly. you know when when you know if you're you know dry, you know on the hook for a bunch of debt for some fancy house or this and that, and you know all of a sudden your options are very limited because you mm-hmm. got you know you got to continue to make a lot of money or whatever. But if if you're willing to go that route that you just said, you know, don't give a shit. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, or I shouldn't say that I should say you don't care about silly stuff. You care about the stuff that matters. Yeah. uh, It's powerful. 
and I'm really lucky that I have a farm and that I can raise my own food and that I have that sort of, you know, that's, I'm, that's such a lucky place to be born into that had nothing to do with what I did. You know, like I was just lucky that my parents bought, you know, they got this farm and they taught me how to do this stuff. And, um, I'm benefiting from that now because it gives me a lot of freedom in in what I do. And, you know, I work with so many different people in Eastern Montana that have put their lives on the line to speak up and say what's right. And as I watch them do it, I think, well, I can do that too. If they can do it, I can do it. Are, and, there, are there any people that come to mind, like specific people that you've run into over your career and life that um, have kind of been like a, a good role model for that kind of take action mentality? Yeah. I mean, I can think of just so many people. I mean, I, I have learned so much from the Eastern Montanans that I work with. Um, one in particular, Vanessa Braided Hair, she's from the Northern Cheyenne tribe. When we were fighting the Otter Creek coal mine and Tongue River Railroad, which would have been the, if built, it would have been the largest coal mine in the country. And, you know, Vanessa and I spent so much, you know, eight years or something fighting that mine. And she, you know, I got paid to do it and she didn't. And she, she basically sacrificed eight years of her life to organize in her community and talk to people. And it wasn't, you know, this online, we, you know, thing where each, you know, action alerts, it was her going door to door, talking to people about it, sitting down saying, what do you think? here's what's going to happen. What do you think about this? And this kind of slow relationship building, organizing work. I mean, I admire her so much for that because it takes such dedication. And then, you know, Wally McRae and Clint McRae, they're ranchers out, out there um, who fought the same thing. And they've been doing that for 40 years, you know, ever since the um, Powder River Basin became sort of a hotbed for coal development. They've been trying to protect that place. And, and speaking out in rural communities is not easy because you, when you speak out, you make yourself known. You are now a, um, you, you know, you put yourself out there and in rural communities where everyone knows each other and you rely on each other for different things, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. So when I, when I'm around them, I look and I think, how could I not do, how could I not speak? Um, if they can, if they can do that. You know, in, in a lot of these rural communities, and this is a, a generalization, but in my experience working throughout the West with a lot of people in the agricultural community, more times than not, there seems to be a, a real um, bias against the, quote, environmentalists. Mm-hmm. And but and I would consider what you're doing, you know, the type of work that you're doing, a lot of it is environmental type work. and But it's protecting your place and it's protecting mm-hmm. the land and it's protecting – you know, the agricultural communities. And so have you run into that much problem with that? Like with with people in the ag world, not buying into the whole environmental thing, it it just seems like there's a a huge disconnect there that I don't fully understand. Does that, does that question even make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And I think, you know, you know what I found organizing over the years and just sort of spending most of my time in rural Montana is that people are pretty complicated politically. And when, you know, the national dialogue makes people choose sides. So Mm -hmm. like you, there, people feel if they're pushed, they'll choose a side. 
But when you sit down with them over coffee and you have these discussions about these in, these issues, a very nuanced and interesting um, thing happens where you start to learn why people think what they do and where it comes from. And I think there is something about that stereotype of an environmentalist that, you know, urban and um, can't take care of themselves. And, you know, there's these ideas we get about each other. Sure. You know, there's ideas urban people have about rural people and, and the opposite. But for me, when I go out there, you know, I come from farmers, um, generations of them in North Dakota and Montana. I have a farm. There's a commonality there. So when I'm talking to people, um, I'm not distrusted immediately because I, because there's a lot of connections. Um, and so I think having, getting in there and having those conversations and building relationships with people and then sort of getting into the more like, you know, um, once that relationship is built, then you can have kind of real conversations about climate change or coal or oil and, and then maybe influence each other, you know? Yeah. I I don't know if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, and I think the best thing that, that you have, you know, aside from the work ethic and the bravery and all that, I mean, I think your local roots, that's a powerful tool because, you know, I, I show up in different communities and I start talking in this Southern accent and people are like, <laughs> who the hell are you? You know, you don't know anything about, about us and, you know, which may be partly true, but it, I think being able to, you know, establish yourself as having these deep roots and you're, you're one of them. Um, and I agree with you about people being complicated. And I mean, that was one of the reasons I want to start this podcast because I see so many different groups, whether it's from ranchers to, to environmentalists and there's so much overlap and there's so much great things, commonalities that you can focus on, but people just get hung up in the the BS, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's guns or you know, yeah. abortion or whatever. And they right. get so focused on that stuff. They can't focus on the things that really, you know, are right in front of their face, you know, on the ground they're walking on. So, right. um, so what led you to go into the environmental world to begin with? So you, you get out of, you get out of, uh, high school, then what do you do? Um, I went to Gonzaga university in Spokane. Oh, cool. Um, for no other reason, you know, really than they gave me a good scholarship and it was close to Montana, but I kind of wanted to get out of the state and I got my degree in international studies and Spanish. And then I went to straight to graduate school because I didn't know (laughs) what else to do. I, I went to university of Denver and I got my degree in international development with a focus on environmental policy. That's a great and school. It, yeah, it's a good school. I learned a lot. And I, you know, in my head back then, I thought I was going to just, you know, join the foreign service and go work on, you know, environmental issues around the world. And during that time, I actually ended up working on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, working on um, a couple different things, uh, bringing bison back to the landscape and also helping um, a researcher at Colorado State University do, she was challenging the census numbers because the census is never really accurate on the reservation, which leads to less federal dollars coming in. Mm -hmm. And so we basically went door to door on the reservation and talked to people. um, And I was doing that for a couple of years. And I just, I had this moment where I realized that, stuff I had been trained to do. I didn't need to be in a different country to, to do it. And I also realized how much I love Montana and I didn't want to leave. 
Um, so I basically got my degrees in international issues and then moved back to Montana and here I am. <laughs> no, that makes sense. My wife has the exact same set of degrees. Um, and she was actually looking at Denver, but decided to go to, um, George Washington, you know, cause mm-hmm. I think those, those schools are right. I mean, they're both at the top and I didn't Condoleezza Rice go to that same yeah, program. She did. Yeah. Yep. Um, but, uh, my dad would always joke around because I'm from a, a pretty poor section of North Carolina. And my dad would say, why, why are you going to take all that knowledge, uh, you know, across the ocean somewhere? We need it here. Move to, move to yeah. Eastern North Carolina. Um, yeah. And that's what you did. I think that's, I think that's awesome. And it takes outside the box thinking. Um, so when you were working with the, the, the Native American tribes, looking back on that and, and your current work in organizing, what, were there any lessons you learned that carried over very, very well into your current work and this current um, organizing that you're doing kind of right there in your backyard? Yeah. I mean, there's so many, there's so many, I was thinking about that. Um, Mostly I learned what it really means to have a relationship versus um, I think what a lot of environmental groups, I I get frustrated slightly because I see this sort of work that's based on what can these people do for us Mm -hmm. versus an actual relationship where reciprocity is developed and, and relationships where you trust each other. And so I have this real, you know, in my world, organizing is about relationships and that's all, all you have in the end. And the tribes, the, the tribes that I worked with and the tribal people I worked with taught me that. And I, also believe that, you know, obviously I come from a different cultural background and there's such value in just when you're trying to work with people to just accept that there are cultural differences and to just be honest about it and say like, I don't understand what's going on here. I I may have made a mistake and I apologize because, you know, and just being really open with that and learning from each other. I mean, I've had some such great conversations with my Northern Cheyenne friends about, just how we're different and, and, you know, and it's okay to say that and it's okay to talk about it and it's okay to just try to figure it out. And so I've just learned, you know, that I look, I play the long game now. I, I'm not interested in short term, short term stuff because I feel like that burns a lot of bridges. And, um, so they, I think the tribes taught me more than, than, you know, they gave me more than I ever gave them. That's really cool. Um, so you, you've kind of already touched on this a little bit, but a lot of your work in organizing involves finding consensus among groups that may not see eye to eye. And we've already talked mm-hmm. a little bit about that with the environmentalists and ranchers and all these different labels everybody puts on themselves. But are there any specific techniques that you've found that have worked for trying to find commonalities between groups? Um, because I feel like on a national level, at least the media would have us think that we're just in a bad state as far as everybody fighting with each other and taking sides and going to their corners and their little tribes. But in all your work, is there like, if you had to boil it down to one or two things, kind of techniques for dealing with people that you may disagree with and making Mm -hmm. it productive, does anything come to mind on that? Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I study, I'm very interested in, you know, the philosophy of democracy and, and, you know, we're, what we're supposed to have is a deliberative democracy. We are all supposed to move into 
conversations with other people with an open mind and be willing to be changed, not necessarily your opinion, but willing to be changed by that other person, even if it's just to understand them a little bit differently. And so I feel like if I, if I can't move into a conversation with an open mind, then how do I expect other people to do that? And so for me, when I'm working with people, I, I listen, I, I don't see that it's my job to judge. I see it as my job to understand. And I also don't assume I know everything about someone just because I see, you know, there might be a couple opinions or a couple things that stand out, but that doesn't mean I know them. And it doesn't mean I know why they think what they think. So my goal as an organizer is to build a relationship. And if that person doesn't trust me, I'm never going to change their mind. So when I am organizing, I try to take a step back. And instead of just, um, you know, I think we get into this world right now where we all want to give our opinions. <laughs> you know, we're like, we have so many opinions about everything. Yep. And I try to step back and just go, okay, like, who is this person? And what do they really think? And, and why do they think that? And do, can we find a connection where I might have an ability to influence them in the future? Um, you know, I think I look at opinions as sort of, I want to, if I have an opinion on something, I better have gotten it honestly. I better have considered the other side. And, you know, I think there was this economist named Albert Hirschman and he wrote this great essay called opinionated opinions and American democracy. And he said, your opinion should come from intense confrontation with the other side. Mm -hmm. And so I find that, I, that's my, you know, I, I need to look at my organizing work like that. Like I need to sit there and really try to understand things before I try to change people's minds. I think that's awesome. And I think that is, uh, very rare, but any, it's rare at any point, but it's especially rare now where everything's online and the social media and everybody wants everything so fast. And you're talking about mm -hmm. your in-depth long, you know, and then in-depth, conversations, which is the opposite of social media, combined, <laughs> yes. combined with long-term relationships, which is the opposite of social media. So yes. um, that's, that's really cool. Um, so when are you uh, going to run for political office? <laughs> I'm not joking. We need, oh, we need you. I, I see my, oh, I, I feel like my strengths lie in, um, mobilizing people to, um, you know, influence politicians, me as a politician, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I could, if I'm that type of person, but you never know. You I never mean, know. It, might, it might happen. You got plenty of time. Um, yeah. and I think that's, since we've known each other all of 35 minutes, um, <laughs> I think, I think it's in the cards, but, um, yeah. so you mentioned, you mentioned the philosophy of democracy. You mentioned, um, some of these uh, essays that you've read, are there any other like books or blogs or, um, things that different resources that have been influential in your thinking on all these subjects? Cause oh. it's all, I mean, I'm sure you've got, you know, what, like years and years of it from school, but any that come to mind that somebody of my intelligence level could understand? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, um, I'm a big reader and I can't, you know, I'm a person that still likes books. I can't read on, you know, like I'm not, I'm not like a person that has a Kindle or Me reads neither. online. Same. So I just have stacks of books everywhere. And 
I'm also a person that I read a bunch of books at the same time. So like Me I'll too. have, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't just pick a book and read through it. But anyway, yes, there are a million books. Um, the most, probably the most influential book that I can think of um, is by a philosopher named John Dewey. And he wrote, he wrote many, many books, but the most important book to me was called The Public and Its Problems. Mm-hmm. And it's about who is the public and when is it formed? And how do we maintain who are we as citizens and and what is our responsibility? And that to me is the most important question we need to be asking ourselves. What is my responsibility as a citizen? And how do I um, engage with government and you know other people in a way that is um, productive and effective? And he, you know, it's a philosophy book, but it it really has such um, you know it's amazing wisdom in it. And you know, there's another book by Robert Putnam. He's a sociologist. It's called Bowling Alone, and it's about the sort of decline in social capital in America like post-World War II, you know, and how we've kind of lost, how, how we're losing community and how we can maybe get it back. Mm-hmm. Um, the economist Albert Hirschman I love. There's, uh, there's a philosopher out of Harvard named James Scott that wrote this book called Seeing Like a State. And it's just about, um, you know, how the state... Um, how we should look at government basically and, and what is the citizen's role in that? Um, and you know, I do, there's so many different books. Oh, and I, I have to say I couldn't do what I do without, um, Wendell Berry and literally everything he's ever written. Mm-hmm. Um, I love his stuff. So that's only, obviously I heard of Wendell Berry. I've heard of bowling alone, but the others are all brand new to me. So I, I really appreciate those. And I'll have links to all these on the webpage so people can click through and see them. Um, I think that community aspect is so huge that that's covered in bowling alone. I haven't read that, but I've read several books that, uh, you know, reference it a lot. And there's one by, um, Sebastian Younger, the guy that wrote perfect storm called tribe. Have you read uh-huh. that? No, I haven't. It is so good. And it's probably been like three podcast episodes since I've mentioned it. And I mention it all the time. Okay. So, <laughs> I'll put it on the list. It's, it is so good. Um, you'd love it. Um, so we've talked a lot, so much about your organizing and your ability to build these relationships, but we haven't at all touched on your talent in photography and writing. And so are you a self-taught photographer and writer? I mean, obviously you did a lot of writing in school, but how did you how did you develop both those skills because you're you're extremely talented at it? Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I didn't actually start I think I started photography maybe I was 2018, so maybe five or six years ago and then writing has been a recent recent thing for me as well. I the reason I started both of those things was, you know, during the work in Eastern Montana to stop the Otter Creek coal mine and railroad, I couldn't get journalists to really come out and cover it. And because it's Eastern Montana and, you know, my, my friend Wally McRae, the rancher out there, he always says, no one cares what happens EOB and East of Billings. And so that's when East of Billings, my blog and photography stuff got up and running. Cause I said, okay, Wally, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you that we can make people care. Um, so I bought a camera 
and taught myself how to use it. And I wanted to show people how beautiful Eastern Montana was because, you know, the Western part of the state gets sort of the um, majority of the attention. And then I started writing on my blog and it kind of took off from there. I mean, I never meant to be a photographer and I never thought people would pay me to do it. And I never thought people would pay me to write either. Um, it was just, it was just an organizing tool for me. And so have you found that, I mean, I guess the answer is probably obvious. Yes. But how, I guess, how has that complemented your organizing work? Because obviously the face-to-face conversations are, are so important in the long-term relationship building, but how, how has that kind of allowed you to step up the efficiency of your, of your mm-hmm. organizing? Well, I think it was, I, I could reach a wider audience. Sure. So it was a way to say, Hey everyone, you know, I know you think that all Eastern Montanans are, you know, don't care if there's a mine in their backyard. Cause that was sort of the perception back when those coal tracks got leased. And but here are these people, here's who they are here. Um, here's where they live. And, and so I was able to get it. I feel like to reach a wider audience in Montana and bring a little bit, bit of attention to that. And, you know, now people use East of Billings, like people will sit, like I'll hear people say it in Bozeman and Missoula. They'll be like, you know, I'll hear conservationists say, well, you know, EOB or East of Billings. And so it's become a thing, which I find to be really funny because, um, that's kind of what we meant to do when we started it. So that's, that's really cool. Um, so whenever I, I have a lot of creative people in here and I'm always curious about like if they're writers or painters or whatever, how they kind of push through creative blocks or push through like, like writer's block or painting block or whatever. And, but I'm more curious with you, I, I would guess that there are a little bit of nerves involved if you're writing about something that is controversial or could cause, yeah. pro- cause trouble um, for people. <laughs> and so how do you push through that? Cause unless like we were talking about before we started recording, unless you're a crazy egomaniac, I would guess that there's always a little bit of doubt or a little bit of hesitation um, before putting yourself out there like that. And so maybe, is there an example of, of something you've written that made you a little nervous, but you, you pushed through it? Well, okay. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a thing, but I, I know that what I'm writing, whatever I write about, I deeply believe. Mm -hmm. So when I hit publish, I'm not like, I don't feel sort of wishy-washy about it, mostly because if I'm going to write about something, I better be a hundred percent behind it. Yep. And so it's less when I hit publish, I'm kind of like, you know, most of the time it's, it's, I'm okay with it. I'm ready for whatever blowback, but, and there really hasn't been any weirdly. And I don't know why that is. I don't really get a lot of criticism from, um, people or, you know, social media trolls or anything like that. Um, the thing I'll tell you though, that I get, the, the thing that is terrifying for me to publish is, you know, when I write my personal stuff, Sure, like that is, that's the most terrifying to me. And it's, you know, I have these moments of, uh, I, I don't know what I would call it. Um, like just regret, you know, the minute you say, yes, I'm going to publish that. And then there's this moment of like, Oh my God, why did I do that? <laughs> so why do you do it? Um, well, what I'm, what I'm specifically talking about is I wrote, I write essays about my father and his, he committed suicide four years ago. And I think it's important 
to write about because I feel like it's something that, you know, if you talk to a lot of Montanans, like everyone has these stories, but we just, people don't feel comfortable saying it Mm -hmm. unless you bring it up first. And then people will open up and they'll say, well, my grandfather or my father or my sister. And I think it's my, I feel compelled to, you know, cause it's a part of who I am now. And I feel like I have to talk about it so that other people can talk about it too. Yeah. That I read that, um, piece and it was, you know, very, very, very well done, but you know, just unbelievably heartbreaking. And I, 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 I really admire you for putting that out there because I, as I was reading it, I was thinking the thing I kept thinking about over and over is that I think a lot of people will benefit from this, mm-hmm. but I mean, that's, I can't imagine there's a lot of things I could do that would benefit a lot of people, but I'm scared to do it. Or um, it makes me, you know, for one reason or another, I could come up with a reason why not to do it and revealing something that personal. I mean, that is um, a level of, of public service. That's hard for me to get my head around, you know? I mean, that's, that's unreal. So um, heartbreaking though. Have you received a lot of, uh, a lot of, emails and comments and that kind of thing from that, from that article. Cause it was unbelievable. Yeah, I, I have. And I, that always makes it, um, worthwhile. And I even got, I got an email from one of my Eastern Montana rancher friends who, you know, he, it was such a nice note because he said, I, he goes, I've had, you know, similar tragedies in my life and I've sort of pushed them down. And when I was reading your piece, I, I was crying and I never cry. And, you know, there was this moment of just like letting that stuff out there. And, um, especially in rural communities, I mean, there's been so much tragedy and we kind of just, we just don't talk about it and to be able to, maybe it can be cathartic for other people, um, when they read it and they can, you know, they can experience some emotions that maybe they've pushed down for, for a while. Um, and, you know, my family makes it easy for me to be able to do this because they're all supportive and they they don't mind that I write about it. And they're um, so it, that makes it easier, too. Do you have siblings? I have a sister. Yes. Older sister. Is she around uh, in that area? Yeah, she lives in Billings. She's got two kids, my niece and nephew. And she's she's great because she edits all of my work and she makes me look a lot smarter than I actually am. So, um <laughs> So I, I couldn't actually write without her. Um, well, not that I'm any kind of like psychoanalyst, but the things that I keep hearing from you, there, there are kind of two sides to it. One is this wanting to serve, wanting to help people, willing to put yourself out there to, um, you know, for the benefit of individuals or the community. And then the other side I hear is like a fervent hate of bullies. <laughs> Oh, yes. And oh, your, yes. Re, you know, refusal to be pushed around <laughs> by people who are used to pushing people around. Yeah. And I think that is that accurate? Oh, it's 100 percent accurate. I mean, what I was going to say at some point, you asked a question and I kind of got off on a different tangent. But I really, really do not like it when people are getting screwed by yeah. people who are, have more power like that. If I had to say one motivation, it's that um, it you, just really pisses me off. Does that? This is kind of a weird question, but I have a very, very similar mindset. And I found with me that the 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 anger or the hatred of bullies and hatred's a bad word, but I really do think it's hatred. Yeah. Hatred of yeah. <laughs> hatred of bullies 
is much more of a driving factor than trying to help people. It's like I want to shut down the bully more than I want to help the person. And I'm not saying that's normal yeah. or nice <laughs> or a healthy way of doing things, but I've I've examined it in depth and I'm pretty sure that's how I operate it. I mean, is that Yeah, I mean, <laughs> are you on that level? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's two sides of the same coin. Like I I find myself super motivated by you know, stopping assholes. Yeah. Like I, you know, I do these uh don't be a dick trainings, like trying to teach people how to, um, you know, communicate and be good people. And, you know, like how, how do we live in a democracy and without killing each other sort of thing. But then, you know, the last part of that training is like, okay, so when are you allowed to be a dick Mm -hmm. and when should you be a dick? And that's when you're dealing with other dicks, you Mm -hmm. know? (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes there, there's only one language, uh, for, for some of these folks that, yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my previous work was very, very adversarial and confrontational. And so there's a lot of, a lot of that. And it's, I mean, it's, you know, unfortunately it's part of life. Um, and if you can get stuff done, you can run into people that are going to try to push you around, but yeah, not us. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> not if I can help it. <laughs> uh, um, well, thank you for being so open and uh, with about the, your dad and, and all yeah. that stuff. Cause it's, I mean, it's, I think people are going to be really inspired by this. It's awesome. Um, so I want to talk, we're already at like 45 minutes, which is crazy. I know. Um, but so talk a little bit, can you talk a little bit about public lands? Because I just saw a great video that you were featured in and I'll, I'll put it, I'll embed it on your webpage so people can see it. Um, but you know, you've obviously private land is important because that's your livelihood, but then the public lands are such a huge part of everybody's life out here. And I know you're a hunter and you're just a general outdoor recreationist. I mean, you, you really, it's a big part of your life. Can you just talk Mm -hmm. a a bit about public lands and your involvement in protecting them? Sure. I mean, I, you know, public lands is one of those things I think us Montanans take for granted a little bit because there's so much of it and we're so close to it. And so, when you grow up just having that, you, you actually, it's like I had to come to my public lands views later in life because I didn't even realize how lucky I was that we, you know what I mean? It's like, it was so embedded in who I am that, um, it's something that I didn't realize that we had to protect in a sense, you know, it was just like, it was who, who us Montanans are and we're so used to just having it. Um, And, you know, I hunt on both public and private land and I grew up on public land, basically like, you know, my parents would just throw us on horseback and we'd go up into the Beartooths and camp and fish and hike and hunt. And, um, I really feel like, you know, as I've thought about this over the years is public lands are the geography of our democracy. They are, um, you know, we, if we lose what we have, we, it is a fundamental foundational piece of our democracy and we need to fight for it as if we are fighting for democracy mm-hmm. because it's the same to me. And I think that, you know, there's so many people like Montana is a place where, you know, most of us hunt and fish, most of us use public lands in some way. And I think that can be a commonality, you know, one of those bridging issues that we can come together on. And I think we've seen that in the last couple of years, um, you know, and as a hunter, I think, you know, what a gift it is for anyone to be able to go out and harvest their own meat and not, you know, 
sometimes I worry about the hunting community that it's just about more about using gear than it is about hunting. But, you know, I think that, um, you know, here in Montana, like it doesn't matter how much money you have, you can go back into the, you know, section here and shoot a deer and that's awesome. So. Have you seen, are you familiar with the new publication called modern huntsman? I don't know if you've seen that online. You know, I haven't ever looked at it, but I've heard about it. Yeah. They're, um, I've had a lot of people associated with that on the podcast, but they're doing some cool work around hunting and kind of a different perspective than the normal, the normal aspect. And then there's like, you know, Steven Rinella and meat eater. And <laughs> there's, um, I think the whole public lands thing is, is pretty cool because it's a, it's a bipartisan deal for the most part. I mean, there are a few, yeah. a few, you know, very, very fringe interests that try to make it so, or make people think it's not, but you know, whether you're in, you know, a, the Audubon society or a bird hunter. I mean, you, you both love public lands. And yeah. so it's, um, it's a neat deal. Can you talk a little bit about your association with the Artemis sportswoman? Oh, yeah. Is that how, is that how you pronounce it? Artemis? Yeah. It's, yep. And so we, there was a group of women throughout the West, maybe I think eight or nine of us that got together and formed a group called Artemis. And it's a group for not, it's not just for women, but it's, you know, it's formed around sort of, pushing the conversation a little bit in the hunting community about conservation and what does it mean to be a sports? I, I don't even really like the word sports woman because it's kind of, there's part of me that's like, I don't really like it cause it's not really a sport to me. It's just about getting my meat. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, we're, we're developing a group to help women not only learn the skills to hunt and fish, but also to become, advocates for the lands that we hunt and fish on. So like for instance, last year I did a butchering training on my farm. So I taught people how to do, um, how to butcher a deer and an elk. And then, you know, this year I've been doing trainings on how to be an advocate for public lands. So we're trying to, you know, not only those on the ground skills, but also like, how do you be an advocate and changing that conversation? So it's not just about, you know, big horns and killing things. It's about being a complete, um, a complete person who understands where their meat's coming from and how to protect it. That's great. And I would imagine that, you know, obviously that's a, a good skill to have of, of how to process your meat. But I would imagine that as a side effect of that, a lot of self-confidence comes from, from understanding that process and knowing yeah. you can do it yourself. Um, yeah. I mean, that's the first thing my dad taught me to do when I was a kid is I've been butchering since I was pretty little. And, um, I love it. I love butchering. I mean, it's, I even, it's something that I just feel it's one of those things. It's like a community event, you know, you're all there and you're cutting meat and you're talking and you're having fun and no one's staring at their phones because they can't, (laughs) you know, um, and then one more thing, and then uh, we can do some of the the fast questions, (laughs) but I've been told that I need to ask you about goats. Oh God. Yes. Talk to me about (laughs) goats. goats. (laughs) What do I need to know about goats? Well, they're assholes for one, um, <laughs> but they're also awesome. But that's, I first got goats, I don't even know, 2008 and to control weeds along the river. Cause we have, you know, the river corridors, uh, you know, weeds just travel down. And so I convinced my dad that I was like, I don't want to spray anymore. We're going to do this. The We're going to get goats. And so they've literally like been the most maddening and also awesome part of this farm because they just do what they want. And every call I got from my mom for like four or five years was, I just knew when I picked it up, she was going to say the goats are out. And 
<laughs> because they would find the weakest part in the fence and they would, you know, they're like a mouse. They can get through like the smallest spaces and like crush their body in weird ways. You're like, how did you get out of that? <laughs> and they're insane. But actually the most popular blogs on my website, East of Billings, are the goat blogs. Really? And yeah, I've got like if you look at the top blogs, it's um Goats Gone Wild, Goat Pimp. Um <laughs> so if you if you want to know about goats, go there and you can read all about them. I will definitely adventures. Definitely link it. Do you have do you have any other animals on your farm? Oh, lots of she- sheep and goats. Um so sheep are we sell sheep meat to just in the local we only sell the local we don't ship them we only sell them to local people and a couple of the restaurants buy our lamb meat um we have a llama to protect the sheep we've got chickens for eggs we've got the goats i've got four dogs um which is actually a low number for me right now and um yeah so we kind of try to do everything we can here that's awesome wait and this shows my ignorance but i need to ask Explain llama to protect the sheep. I don't know how that works. So they attach to the sheep, the llamas do. I mean, I think, I don't know much about llamas. The llama is a recent addition. You know more um, than I do. I don't. I... And his name is, his name is Percy and he's also an asshole. <laughs> but he That's does what not... you want, the security guard, right? <laughs> yeah. He does not spit at me, which is good. Nice. Um, so he protects it. He just feels very protective over the sheep. So if like we get coyotes or anything that comes in, he will run out to, you know, fight them basically. And we've seen it happen. He, um, you know, he's, he's not going to be the, you know, we still have predator problems, but he's definitely cut down on the, on the amount of sheep that we lose every year. So I did not know that. I just, I didn't know that they would fight, uh, coyotes or anything. That's pretty cool. Yeah. They use their, their, their feet to hit them. So well, I know people go hunting with llamas and I always wondered how they didn't just get taken out, but I guess they're a lot tougher than I was giving them credit for. That's, yeah, they're pretty uh, tough. <laughs> that's awesome. To see? Yeah. Learn something every day. Um, yeah. So can we run through some of these quick questions? Do you have time for that real quick? Oh, sure. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so you obviously read a ton. What Do you have any favorite books about the American West? Yes. I mean – there's so many, but one of the ones I think everyone should read is called The Mountain and the Fathers by Joe Wilkins. He is from Melstone, Montana, which is north of me. Um, it's it's such a great book. It's a memoir about him growing up in Melstone. And it what I'm very interested in with Western writing is sort of this, like, what does the new West look like? Like, who are we? Can we talk about rural poverty? Can we talk about the violence of the West in a way that's real, that kind of takes away some of that romanticism that we see a lot of? And Joe is just, this memoir of his is just spectacular. Um, there's also a book of essays that was edited by Lynn Stegner, um, Wallace Stegner's daughter, and Russell Rowland called West of 98. Mm-hmm. And it's an essays about living and writing in the new American West. Cool. Um, and then there's a history by K. Ross tool called Montana an uncommon land. And it's kind of, it's a great history of Montana. And I think there's one of his opening lines. It's always said, he said, there is little or nothing moderate about the story of Montana. It has ricocheted violently down the corridor of possibilities. Cool. And I just, yeah, he opens with that. And I, I think the rest of the book is spectacular. 
I've never um, even heard of any of those. I've heard of the essays, I guess, but other, otherwise, none of those. So I'll link to those. That's great. Um, do you have, what's your favorite book of all time, if you had to pick just one? Oh, my God. That's hard. You don't um, have to answer it if you don't want to. I think the book that's most influenced me in my thinking has been The Public and Its Problems. Okay, cool. I don't, I'm not really a fiction reader. I mean, I've, I do read fiction sometimes, but I'm uh, pretty stuck in the nonfiction world. Yeah, same. I can't read. I feel like I'm wasting time if I'm reading fiction, and I know that's incorrect. Um, well, but, if you want to read a really good fiction book, there's one called Three Day Road by Joseph Boyden, B-O-Y-E, or D-E-N. He's, mm-hmm. It's a great book. Cool. I'm always looking for recommendations because I, I usually get like 50 pages in and then get distracted and go <laughs> yeah. read another book about TR. Right. So. <laughs> right. um, do you have any favorite documentaries or films? Um, right now, I suppose it would be Dark Money that my mom is actually in that movie. And it's about um, the influx of dark money in Montana politics. And she was a character in the film because she was the first person who filed the complaints against these dark money groups um with the commissioner of political practices here in montana so um it's a great a great movie just about the ins and outs of that and what what all this money this influx of money is doing to our elections is that on netflix um i think dark money is running on pbs right now and i think it's on amazon prime too it might be on netflix but i'm not sure okay awesome that's very cool i will um i'll look that up so you've obviously got a lot going on um, with all your work and hobbies and hunting and just general outdoor activities from your Instagram. It appears you spend a ton of time out exploring. <laughs> um, do you, Are there any activities you enjoy that might be surprising to listeners? Like, do you do anything funny? Uh, well, I can tell you that I do not enjoy gardening. You do not. Well, the goats are, not. the goats are there for that, right? Yeah, I just really don't like it. If I started a blog, it would be called the Angry Gardener. Um, <laughs> I do do it, but I don't enjoy it. Um, I don't know. I don't know if, if anything would be surprising. I, I mean, um, no, you you've got enough yeah. going on. I think, uh, yeah. yeah, that's. <laughs> Well, it's all surprise. I mean, like standing up to Exxon is surprising, very surprising to me. So you don't need to be wasting time with like <laughs> knitting. I learned how to knit one time. And yeah. so that's, that's my answer. Um, so what is the most powerful experience you've ever had in the outdoors? And that could be funny, scary, intense, just a, a experience that sticks out in your head as being a very memorable, powerful experience. Um, I think most recently it's when I went to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and was um, I was taking photos for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service up there. And um, being dropped off in the middle of 20 million acres with no roads is pretty intense. And I was shocked at the wildness and the bigness of the landscape. And, you know, I thought I knew thought I knew wild. And then you go there and you're like, oh, my God, I didn't I didn't realize um, how amazing and it could be. And it, it changed my perspective on what I think, uh, the wild is. Had so. you ever been to Alaska before? I'd been to Alaska, but only to Anchorage. And so never, never in the outdoors in Alaska. And it's, in, it's insane. It is insane. The the scale of things, you know, you spend time out here and you think you understand how big mountains are and how big valleys are. 
And then you go to Alaska and it's just your whole, at least when I was there, my whole kind of calibration of everything got screwed up because everything's just so much bigger, including the wildlife and the, and I mean, it's just, it's crazy. That's what I mean. I mean, we would get out of our tents and, you know, that morning and we'd look around and we'd be like, okay, we're going to go, we were in the Sheenjuk River Valley, which is where the Murrays did their expedition to make the case to actually make that a wildlife refuge. And so we were camping in the same spot that they were. And we would, you know, we read their journals and everything and we would start to go to different places. And, you know, I'd look and I'd be like, well, that's going to take us a couple hours. And then, you know, six hours later, we're still walking. <laughs> you know, I'm like, wow, I, my perspective here is really screwed up. Yeah, it's pretty cool up there. Um, so where is your favorite location in the West? It could be anywhere, a town, your farm. Um, I would say there's a ranch in Southeast Montana that I absolutely love that I spend, you know, I hunt there and sometimes I feel like it's, it's where crazy horse and sitting bull, you know, move through before the battle of the little big horn and there's petroglyphs and rock art. And, um, it's just my, my spot. I just feel like I'm at home there and I love it. Cool. Um, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, I think it's, it was a boxing coach and he said, if you're not willing to get your ass kicked, you better get out of the ring. <laughs> and so I always think about it. Um, if I'm not wet, willing to lose or if I'm not willing to, um, you know, put myself out there, then I better not be in, you know, doing what I'm doing. So I've always got to be willing to, to fail. Was that a boxing coach that you read about or a boxing coach that you had because you were boxing? It was a, no, I, my dad actually taught me to box, but it was a boxing coach of a friend of mine. That's cool. It goes so. back to the man in the arena quote from TR. It all goes back to TR in my mind, but <laughs> you know, like it's better to be in the middle of getting, getting your ass kicked than in the, than in the seats watching. Yeah. You know, I think. Yeah. I mean, it is. And you know, I had a, another, one of my first bosses at National Wildlife Federation, he like, I don't know, the first week I was there, he, was, he said, you know, always protect the resource. Your job is to protect the resource. And your decisions that you make should be because of that, not because of any other reason. So that kind of moved through thinking that, like, what am I, what am I trying to protect and how, how do we get that done? And so final question, if you could make a request of the people listening to this podcast, and it's just people who love the American West in one way or the other, whether it's through conservation or agriculture or athletics, um, if you could offer some words of wisdom or advice or ask them to do something, is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah. I mean, number lately, number one has been buy a chest freezer and buy your meat from a local rancher. Mm -hmm. And that to me, like where we get our food and how we're getting our food could be, I mean, that's just, I've been spending a lot of time working with some ranchers and you know, Nebraska and on regenerative agriculture. And I really believe like our meat and where we get it and, you know, how we pick what food we're eating is just so important. And so, and if, and if your listeners don't know how to do that, just send me a message and I will help you no matter where you are. I will find a rancher you can buy your meat from. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's awesome. I think that's. Oh, uh, and also yeah. people need to get up and speak at a public hearing, go to a public hearing Get up there, say what you think, and start participating. 
That's awesome. I think everybody, I need to take that advice. I've never done that. Um, okay. <laughs> so I will be the first to take your advice. All right. Um, well, so how can people connect with you online? Where can they find you? So they can go to my website, eastofbillings.com or I'm on Instagram just as my name. And, you know, that's a way to send me a message. So. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This was really, yeah. really cool. It's inspiring. And as I said before we started recording, you're a badass, whether you admit it or <laughs> not. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Ed. This was fun. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, you can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainimperial.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.